Thank you, Rochelle. And uh, as you read, there's a special blessing for those who read this book aloud. So I, I think uh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. So today, we're starting a new teaching journey. Uh, we're tackling this book, this interesting book, the book of Revelation. Uh, it's an unusual book in the library that makes up the Christian Bible. It has similarities to some of the prophecies of the Old Testament because it contains visions and images that are graphic, memorable, and in some cases, frightening. It also has a lot of similarity to some of the New Testament letters because some of it is couched as letters to specific churches. The book of Revelation is one that I haven't tackled before from this pulpit. I think that's partly because I'm aware that over the years, this, this book, letter, prophecy has been misread in all kinds of ways. There have been many attempts to use this book as a kind of farmer's almanac of the times of the end, a mystical volume that, if only it can be read the right way, will tell us how and when Jesus will return. Such efforts have always been futile, and some of them have been downright silly. Some of them have scarred and scared people so much that the last thing they want to do is read the book of Revelation ever again. And that's really unfortunate, because not to read this book is to miss out, A, on a blessing, but B, on some solid teaching to the church under pressure and an overarching perspective on the person of Jesus, the significance of the cross, and the full realization of the kingdom that we badly need, because we too are part of that church in the world under pressures of many sorts, and we need to be reassured that God is on His throne, and that Jesus is exalted and alive and interested in what is happening in our world. Modern scholarship generally sees this letter as grounded in the context of the persecution that was being experienced by the church towards the end of the first century, and as a letter of encouragement to stay the course no matter what the cost. As such, it is really a letter about discipleship, and as you are hopefully aware by now, discipleship has been a theme that we have been following throughout our year here at Granville under our title, One Mission, Disciples Making Disciples. So we've been thinking about all kinds of aspects of discipleship this year. And so Revelation fits within that frame. It also fits within a wider frame over the last three years We've been looking at, in our major strategic plan for the, for the chapel here, we've been looking at one Lord, one church, one mission. And Revelation kind of encapsulates all that, which is why we've entitled this series, One Lord, One Church, One Mission. It's like a culmination of the last three years of our teaching. So, our plan is to teach our way through Revelation over the next 10 weeks. Clearly, we cannot do the whole book justice in such a constrained time, so we've chosen key passages 
hopefully ones that will uh, illustrate the main themes of the book and help us understand the flow, where it's coming from, and where it's going. And so this morning, we're starting in the logical place, the first chapter. And so let's dig in and have a look together at what's going on here uh, in this fascinating text. So the book starts out by being described as a revelation uh, given to Jesus Christ by God in order to show his servants what must soon take place. And Jesus Christ has then made it known by his messenger, an angel is literally a messenger, sent to his servant John. Now, the John we're talking about here, there are several in the New Testament, as you're probably aware, but this is John the Apostle, the disciple, the brother of James, known for writing the Gospel of John, and also the three letters that we get, John 1, 2, and 3, towards the end of the New Testament. And John here attests to the veracity of all that he has seen and heard. He wants his readers to know that this is him, and this is what he's experienced, and he's passing it on to help us understand what's going on. And he then pronounces this blessing that I've referred to already, both on those who read aloud the words of the prophecy and to those who hear it and take to heart what they hear, because, he says, the time is near. Now, at that point, we should probably sit up and say, hey, what time is that? Uh, how come... It's talking about time here. The word used here is the same word for time that is used in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus begins his public ministry by announcing, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. And the kingdom came near because Jesus himself, the king, came near. And so both... The time and the kingdom come together because Jesus, the King, is near. And so there's a kind of urgency about that. Jesus is present. Jesus is here. Having started off as a prophecy, Revelation promptly turns into a letter from John. It's addressed to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and we will meet each of these churches as we read on into chapters 2 and 3. Like many of the New Testament letters, Revelation starts with formal greetings. It's a kind of stylized way you wrote letters in the, in the first century. And John wishes them grace and peace from him who is, that's the present, who was, the past, and who is to come, the future. And this is a way of describing Father God in His majesty and fullness and completeness. From ancient times through the present to all of the future, God is God over all. It's the big picture of Father God reigning. Grace and peace is also sent from the seven spirits before the throne. Now, I take this to be a, a reference to and description of the Holy Spirit, but in Revelation, the number seven is one of those numbers that's going to recur frequently, and often it seems to signify completeness or perfection. So don't get lost down a rabbit hole on sevens. Just understand the Holy Spirit is wonderful and complete and is described here as seven. Why not? And... 
grace and peace is also sent here from Jesus Christ, who is described as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. These are all exalted titles for Jesus. The faithful witness, the second Adam to the fight, the firstborn from the dead, the one who bashed apart the control of death and Hades and started a new thing going called resurrection life as we celebrated last week at Easter. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is no small Jesus. This is big Jesus being described here. As you can see, this is a solidly Trinitarian greeting, and it glorifies each of the persons of the Trinity. Having started with this amazing greeting, the letter transitions immediately to praise, doxology, to Jesus, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood shed on the cross and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Now here, the perspective on Jesus is of those of us who have come to know him. So it's, this is humanity looking at Jesus. And we see him as he truly is. The one who loves us and has rescued us through his death on the cross. And we have discovered his love, his forgiveness, and his redemption. He's totally worthy of our praise. We should be praising him. Hopefully you feel that when we sing as a community. Thank you, Nikki and the team, for leading us into worship this morning. We were born for that because worship lifts us up to see the truth of who God is, who Jesus is. And we are called to be worshipers first. The doxology is immediately followed by a sentence that links together some phrases from Old Testament prophecy. So uh, there is a piece here from Daniel, another piece from Zechariah, and John has woven them together, and together they point forward to a time yet to come when they will finally be fulfilled. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, because they realize how they have rejected and mistreated the king of kings. That's the greetings and the doxology. And now they come to a a wrap-up with a literal word from the Lord who introduces himself as the Alpha and the Omega which are the beginning and ending letters of the Greek alphabet. And in case we hadn't picked up on it earlier, the one who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. The repetition of that phrase is surely purposeful. If we can only get a glimpse this morning of how all-encompassing and almighty the Lord God actually is, it's really going to help us hold any threats from earthly powers or even spiritual powers in their appropriate frame. God is big. God is powerful. And there is nothing that is going to happen in our world that is beyond His capability or reach. So now we get on 
to the meat of the letter. And John frames it by identifying himself humbly as their brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I read that phrase and I thought to myself, well, we like to think about the kingdom, and yes, we're part of God's kingdom, but we don't like to think so much about suffering or about patient endurance of suffering because they're the kind of things we try to avoid at all costs. So here's John celebrating those kinds of things. And it does make me wonder about the gospel that we proclaim. So often we've dumbed it down and simplified it. Come to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. But that is not the experience of Christians in the world, generally speaking. Actually, it's come to Jesus and your life is about to get a lot tougher than it ever was. It's going to get more complicated, not less. Because now you have to follow the king. And the king went to the cross. And the king suffered and gave his life in order to achieve the victory on Calvary and resurrection. And we are invited into that life pattern. So when John talks about the suffering and the patient endurance, he is speaking as part of the church in the world and someone who knew what he was talking about. He had suffered many losses. His brother James executed. Peter executed. Paul executed by the time he's writing this. And John is a lonely old man. His band of brothers are in glory. He has seen much suffering. And where is he now? Well, he's actually on the island of Patmos in exile because he has refused to bow the knee to the emperor Domitian. In AD 92, the emperor Domitian, the Roman Empire, made a decree and said that everyone in the empire had to worship him as Lord and God. John couldn't do that because he had another Lord and he had another God and he wasn't prepared to bow the knee and uh, make an offering in a Roman temple to Domitian. And by now, Rome was smartening up a bit. Persecution was real, but they realized that martyrdom didn't exactly help them too much. All it seemed to do was give courage to the rest of the Christians. And so, John, rather than being made a martyr, gets exiled to the island of Patmos, which is an island 10 miles off the coast of Turkey. And there he probably had to submit to forced labor uh, in a rock quarry, breaking up rocks as an old man, suffering for his faith, knowing what he was talking about in terms of suffering and patient endurance. And it was there, while he was on Patmos, in the spirit, caught up in worship on the Lord's day, that he suddenly heard a voice behind him. 
And this is where it gets really interesting. It's a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And it instructs him to write on a scroll all that he's about to see and to send it round as a circular letter to the seven churches of Asia. And so John turns round, and what he sees is curious indeed, because there are seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of them is someone standing like a son of man. Now, the description like a son of man would automatically have clued in all the readers to the fact that this is none other than Jesus himself. You remember when Jesus was in his public ministry, he used to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And he did that because back in Daniel, there's this reference to one like a Son of Man who is brought before the Ancient of Days and is given the kingdom. So whenever Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was cross-referencing to ancient prophecy. And here, for John to use that phrase, he knows who he's seeing when he turns around. But this is Jesus in a way that John has never seen before. Well, even that's not quite true. You remember that day when John and Peter and James went up the mountain and Jesus was transfigured before them? And, and he started to shine. And they all kind of fell over, and it was all very strange up on the mountain, right? But, but actually, John had seen Jesus like this before, because this is Jesus in his glory. And look at this description. I mean, this is, this is a place where I think we, we struggle, because we don't have all the words to describe the reality that John was experiencing. Because this is reality that is actually beyond the reality of our earth. This is cosmic reality we're getting into here. But look at the description. Jesus in this vision is the heavenly king, the glorified savior, the cosmic Christ. He wears a long robe with a golden sash that somehow reminds us of the fact that he's a high priest as well as a king. His head and his hair are white, pure white, and his eyes are fiery bright. His feet shine like burnished bronze, and his voice sounds like a torrent rushing over a waterfall. In his right hand, he's holding seven stars, and his tongue is like a sharp sword, double-edged. And his face just pours out light like the sun bursting out from behind a dark cloud. Dazzling. Wow. This is the kind of encounter that if you saw it, you would do exactly what John did. Fall over like a dead man. He falls in a heap as if he'd been struck by lightning. Not an uncommon reaction for humans when they encounter reality that stands behind the reality that we see most of the time. Our fragile selves, weakened by sin, when exposed to the full burning light of God's holiness, simply fall. 
and fail. But here's the beautiful thing in this amazing image. Jesus, the great king, the cosmic Christ, is also the Jesus of the dusty roads of Palestine, the one who knows John well and loves him dearly. And he reaches out and he picks up John, his friend. His right hand extends to him and he tells him, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, forever and ever. And I got the keys, the keys of death and Hades. Wow, how gentle, how gracious, how personal. In a cosmic image, in an amazing reality, in something that must have felt totally weird to John. It's all personal, relational, and kind, and loving. And in the final play of this first chapter, John is commissioned to write down what he's seen, what's happening now, what will take place later. And then Jesus lets him in on the fact that the seven stars that he's holding in his hand are the angels of the seven churches. Apparently, churches have angels. Think we've got one? Maybe. And the seven lampstands where he stands are the seven churches themselves. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Revelation chapter 1. So where does this leave us today? I would like to leave us with the thought that the reality that we see is only a very small part of the reality that there is, right? So we go around our own little planet, we do our little things in our little city, we go to work, we come home, we get on with the family, we have struggle with the family, we hear bad news, we get shaken up by it, we, we live in these little expressions of reality. But this chapter tells us that there's more and tells us that the reality we can't see is much more important and significant than the reality that we do see. And that there are just moments when the veil gets lifted and we see reality as it really is. And that's hard for us to cope with. It's hard for John. <laughs> we kind of get that comes through, right? I mean, he's a mess, right? He's, he's collapsed on the floor. He's shaking like a leaf. He's, he's having this encounter. But the reality, the reality is what counts. And here we get God wanting to let his people know that the big picture is absolutely secure. That, that God himself is from time immemorial, all through the present, and all on, into the future. That Jesus has broken into time, 
has taken on death and smashed it apart, is alive forever, and has the keys. The keys are the control. Satan had them. He thought he had us all down. But Jesus wrested them from him, defeated him, and now he has the keys. And now, reality is dictated by that big picture, not our small picture. Jesus is worthy of our praise. Jesus is majestic, glorious, magnificent. And our reality is under that reality. Now, some of you are here today, and your reality at the moment is tough. It's not all easy. You're dealing with struggle, sickness, tough things, things that you didn't expect, things that you didn't want, things that you don't need. You're mad at God because stuff is not going right for you. Well, I'd like you to hear this morning that John wasn't very happy being on Patmos either, I suspect. I don't think smashing up rocks in his old age felt like a good time for him. But Jesus knew, and Jesus watched, and Jesus made himself present. And I want to encourage you this morning that the reality is bigger. Jesus is bigger. Jesus knows exactly who you are. He loves you. He cares for you. And if this is your time to experience some of the suffering, some of the perseverance that are part of the journey of faith, then instead of bucking that and fighting it and pushing that away, turn again to Jesus and invite Him in and welcome Him into that bigger picture, that bigger reality. It's bigger, he's bigger, he's more glorious, he's more wonderful than we could ever imagine. And I want to assure you that that reality is the big reality this morning. Can you hear that? Hopefully, Revelation is going to blow our minds as to how big God is, how good his plans are for us, and how kind he really is. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this letter, prophecy, apocalypse, uh, the revelation. Lord, it's not dull. And uh, Lord, we thank you that it reveals you as you are, majestic, powerful, wonderful, and a Savior worth following. Lord Jesus, forgive us. We live such little lives so often. We get so self-focused, and we lose sight of the big reality. Thank you for reminding us this morning that you are the resurrected Savior, that you are the one who has broken death, that you have removed the fear, and that this morning you tell us not to be afraid. Help us, Lord, where we are afraid, where we are struggling. And Lord, would you meet us this morning as we continue to worship? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
As we move into worship, I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to invite our prayer ministry team to come on up, and we get it. There is struggle. There is lots of struggle, and if you need prayer this morning for whatever struggle you're in, come on up and receive it. If you are in a joyful space where you just want to share your joy and be prayed for, come on up, receive it. The prayer ministry team will be delighted to pray for you this morning. Nikki, take it away. Thanks. Earlier this morning, we sung Hosanna, which is a song that we've sung the past couple of weeks, actually, leading into this Easter season. And um, there are a couple